investigating a missing person's case often means stepping into someone else's shoes and trying to see things from their perspective, which can be challenging when you're talking about a disappearance that happened over a century ago. Today, we're not just traveling back in time. We're entering a completely different world. New York High Society in the 1900s, when the Vanderbilts and Rockefellers flaunted their fortunes and Victorian values met the wealth of the Gilded Age. Decorum was everything, and the stakes were high. A scandal could ruin lives or topple an empire. Reputation was prized above all else, even the truth. This was Dorothy Arnold's world. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet Dorothy Arnold, a 25-year-old socialite and the daughter of one of New York City's wealthiest families. In the winter of 1910, she vanished from the streets of Manhattan without a trace. More than a century later, her disappearance remains unsolved. But the evidence suggests Dorothy's life wasn't as charmed as it seemed. Like I said, perception and status play a big role in Dorothy Arnold's case. Keep that in mind as you listen, because during the investigation, certain details come into question. Others turn out to be completely made up. But I'm gonna tell you Dorothy's story the way it unfolded back in 1910, starting with the day she disappeared. Dorothy lives on East 79th Street in Manhattan's Upper East Side, just two blocks from Central Park, prime real estate both then and now. The neighborhood is a haven for New York's wealthiest and most influential residents, which includes Dorothy's family, the Arnolds, who can trace their ancestry back to the Mayflower. Dorothy's father, Francis Rose Arnold, is a Harvard grad who founded a company that imports luxury goods and perfumes. Dorothy's mother, Mary Arnold, also comes from wealth. On the morning of December 12th, Dorothy gets ready to run some errands. She puts on a navy suit that complements her gray-blue eyes and pairs it with a fox fur muff so her hands don't get cold. Over her thick brown hair, she wears a velvet hat decorated with two roses. It's elegant and sophisticated, and exactly what Dorothy's going for. She makes her way downstairs and tells her mom that she's going shopping. Her younger sister, Marjorie, has a debutante party coming up, and Dorothy needs a new dress. Dorothy's mom, Mary, offers to go shopping with her which may come as a surprise to Dorothy. Writers have described Mary as being a sickly person who rarely leaves home. But Dorothy tells her mom not to worry about coming. She'll call if she finds something. A little after 11 a.m., she heads out the door. It's cold and the streets are icy, but Dorothy makes the trip on foot. She likes walking. It gives her a chance to get some fresh air away from her family. She heads west to Fifth Avenue, then turns south and walks 20 blocks down to 59th Street. That's where she makes her first stop, at a candy store called Park in Tilford's. 
she has at least $25 on her, which at the time would be enough to buy a thousand Hershey candy bars. But she only buys a small box of chocolates and doesn't use the cash. She charges it to her family store account. It's noon by the time she leaves. Dorothy walks another 32 blocks to the Brentano's bookstore on 27th and 5th. She browses the fiction section until about 1.45 p.m. She purchases a collection of short love stories called An Engaged Girl Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake. Once again, she charges it to her family's account and leaves. When she gets outside, it's just before 2 p.m. On the street, Dorothy bumps into a friend of hers named Gladys King. It's a happy accident. Gladys was on her way to mail her RSVP for Dorothy's sister's party. Now she doesn't need to. She hands the RSVP to Dorothy. They talk for a few minutes and then part ways. Before Gladys gets too far, she turns around and gives one last wave goodbye. Dorothy smiles and returns the gesture. Then Gladys rounds a corner and the two women disappear into crowds of New Yorkers. The image of Dorothy standing on that street corner, smiling, will possibly be the last memory ever recorded of her. She's never seen again. In the weeks to come, Dorothy Arnold's seemingly ordinary afternoon of shopping and errands will be scrutinized. Every step, from the moment Dorothy left her home until her conversation with Gladys ended, will be retraced and printed in the papers. Every detail will be included, down to the black velvet hat on her head. But that evening, Dorothy's mother Mary sits by the phone at home. She waits to hear whether Dorothy found a dress. Hours pass without a word. Dinner comes and goes. And then, the Arnolds start placing calls to friends. No one's seen or heard from Dorothy. But before hanging up, the Arnolds make an odd request. They ask the friends to please keep their conversation about Dorothy's absence private. And later, their reaction to the situation only gets stranger. One of Dorothy's friends calls back sometime after midnight to check if she made it home all right. And Mary tells them that she did. Dorothy came home and there's nothing to worry about. When the friend asks to speak with Dorothy, Mary says that's not possible. Dorothy had a headache and went to bed. But it's a lie. The first of many the Arnolds will tell. By breakfast on the morning of December 13th, 1910, Dorothy Arnold's been missing for more than 12 hours. Her family decides they can't wait any longer. They have to do something. But they don't contact the police. Dorothy's older brother calls a close friend named John Keith and asks him to come to their house. Keith arrives and the Arnolds break the news. Dorothy's missing and they need him to find her. Now, for context, Keith is young, just a few years older than Dorothy, and a lawyer. He works for a reputable law firm, but he's not a detective. When it comes to looking for a missing person, he doesn't have much, if any, relevant experience. But that's apparently not what matters to the Arnolds. They want someone they can trust who will respect their privacy. And Keith is in their circle. That's the reason they've been acting so strange about everything. They want discretion. Why? Well, not long before Dorothy disappeared, the daughter of another prominent family in Manhattan went missing. It was a really big deal. 
The story was all over the papers, and everyone assumed she'd been kidnapped. Turns out that wasn't the case. She reappeared a few days later and was totally fine. The whole thing was a stunt. The daughter felt stifled by her overbearing parents and ran away to teach them a lesson. When word got out, it was a huge embarrassment for the family. And that's probably what the Arnolds are trying to avoid. Dorothy disappeared just a few days before her sister's debutante party. And in this day and age, that's a major milestone event. There are a lot of eyes on the Arnolds and the event. If a scandal broke out now, the reputational damage could affect Marjorie's entire future. And by extension, the family's. Now trust me, I'm not defending the decisions here. I'm just trying to understand what's happening and why. If Dorothy only ran away for a few days, the Arnolds might not want to risk getting the media and police involved. Their friend John Keith understands this and agrees to help investigate. He starts by searching Dorothy's bedroom. For the most part, everything looks normal. Her clothes are still hanging in the closet, but on her desk, there are two folders with info on transatlantic steamships. And in the drawer, there are some letters with European postmarks. Now, that probably sounds promising to you, but there's a catch with this case. We have no idea what the letters say or if they exist at all, since the family at one point denied them. Most pieces of evidence containing details about Dorothy's personal life were either kept under wraps or destroyed. In fact, according to Keith, when he keeps looking, he finds a charred heap of papers in the fireplace that are too burnt to read. But Dorothy's brother John has a theory about what happened. Dorothy studied literature at Bryn Mawr College and dreamed of being a writer, but her family wasn't supportive. It all started last October. Dorothy asked her dad if she could move out of the house and get an apartment down in Greenwich Village, near Washington Square Park. Even in 1910, the neighborhood was known as a bohemian mecca. But Francis is old money, and as the family patriarch, allowing his unmarried daughter to live near a bunch of radical artists was out of the question. He shut the idea down and told Dorothy a good writer can write anywhere. Rather than argue with her dad, Dorothy sat down at a typewriter to prove her worth. She wrote a short story called Poinsettia Flames and submitted it to McClure's, a well-known literary magazine. And it got rejected. I'm sure that was a blow to Dorothy's confidence, but her family only made things worse. They apparently found Dorothy's literary dreams laughable and made fun of her for even trying. It's not the kind of support system that anyone wants or deserves, but Dorothy kept at it in private. By December, she wrote at least one more short story called Lotus Leaves. And to save herself from humiliation, she rented a P.O. box where she could get rejection letters without her family knowing. Our team tried to track down Dorothy's stories to read them ourselves, but we couldn't find anything. It's possible Dorothy burned them herself. At least that's what her brother John suggested. Those charred pages in her fireplace might have been rejected manuscripts. Now, let's recap. When Dorothy disappeared, she had a secret P.O. box, was maybe researching travel plans, wanted space away from her family, and was carrying a decent amount of cash, money she chose not to spend on her errands that day. Maybe not enough to get her to Europe, but more than enough to leave home. After searching the Arnold's home, 
John Keith checks out the city's hospitals and jails, thinking maybe Dorothy got hurt or arrested. He even checks the morgues, but he doesn't have any luck, so he expands his search to other cities like Philadelphia and Boston. And mind you, he does this all in person, so it takes time. Two weeks have passed and there's still no sign of Dorothy. Around this time, Keith suggests that the Arnolds contact some professionals. If they don't want to work with the police, they can try the Pinkerton Detective Agency, a famous private investigation firm for the wealthy and well-connected. 50 years earlier, they saved President Lincoln from an early assassination attempt. If anyone can find Dorothy, it's them. The Arnolds reach out to Pinkerton, they take the case, and the agency immediately sends a description of Dorothy to police departments across the US. But even with the news of her disappearance spreading, there's no movement. So on January 22nd, 1911, the Arnolds finally cave and report Dorothy missing to the NYPD. But by this point, no one's seen her for close to six weeks. The police tell the Arnolds their best chance of finding Dorothy is going public, which is the last thing they wanna hear. Francis Arnold has done everything in his power to keep his daughter's disappearance quiet, and he refuses to change that now. For the next two days, Dorothy's father fights with the NYPD, insisting that there has to be another way, but they tell him it's too late for a traditional investigation. It's either go to the press now or risk losing Dorothy forever. So out of other options, Francis caves. He holds two press conferences on January 25th and 26th. It's evident that he doesn't want to be there. He's gruff, to the point. He gives the basic details of her disappearance, announces a reward for any information, and asks the press to respect his family's privacy, especially his wife's. Mary's been feeling worse since Dorothy went missing and needs time to recover. He asks that no one bother her. Then, out of the blue, he says he believes his daughter is dead. But not just that she's dead, he lays out a whole scenario for how she died. He thinks she was attacked while walking home through Central Park and her body was dumped in a lake or a reservoir. His statement completely baffles reporters. To the best of anyone's knowledge, there's no evidence to support his statements. Even if he's just acting on some strange gut feeling, why announce it to the media, the people he just asked to help find her? During the press conference, Francis also insists Dorothy was perfectly happy, a devoted daughter with loving friends and a charmed life. She had almost no problems at all, which we know isn't exactly true. Then one reporter asks Francis if he allowed Dorothy to date, and he gives a strange answer that's also not really an answer. He bristles and says he's happy for his daughter to spend time with men of brains and position, but he doesn't approve of men who, and these are his words, have nothing to do. It's oddly specific, like he has someone in mind, someone he didn't approve of his daughter dating and doesn't want the press to know about. Sure enough, days later, a dedicated journalist tracks down a so-called man with nothing to do. Turns out he's from Pittsburgh, and his name is George Griscom Jr., but everyone calls him Jr. Like Dorothy, he comes from a wealthy, well-connected family. The two probably met while Dorothy was studying at Bryn Mawr College, although Jr.'s a lot older. 
He's 42 and still lives with his elderly parents, and as far as I can tell, he doesn't work. His mother still buys his clothes, and he spends most of his time traveling Europe with his parents. Life for Junior is essentially one long vacation. He sounds like the exact kind of person Francis Arnold would hate his daughter to date, and maybe to some degree, that's why she did. But Dorothy's relationship with Junior was much more than a fling. After doing some digging, journalists find out they were once engaged to be married. Not only that, three months before Dorothy went missing, she told her parents she was going to visit a friend in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But she went to see Junior instead. They spent a week together in a Boston hotel. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you. A grown woman meets her boyfriend on vacation. But in 1910, it's a scandal. And it sells papers. Dorothy's photo was already all over the news. Headlines about the missing heiress were everywhere from New York to Los Angeles. After reporters find out about Dorothy's salacious relationship, the media frenzy spins out of control. So much so that when Junior returns from his vacation with his parents in Florence, journalists swarm him with questions. As you can imagine, he's a little caught off guard when a bunch of reporters show up to his cruise liner. But he's cooperative. In fact, compared to Francis Arnold, the journalists find him surprisingly likable. He seems friendly and genuine. He admits that he and Dorothy were together. And he says he's aware that she's missing because the Arnolds told him. They suspected that Dorothy might have gone to meet Junior in Europe, so they had John Keith send him a telegram asking if she was with him. Junior replied, saying he didn't know where she was. But journalists learn that wasn't the last interaction. Before Dorothy was even reported missing by the Arnolds, two people showed up at Junior's hotel in Florence looking for him, a younger man and an older woman wearing a veil. In early January, 1911, the world learns that Dorothy Arnold's boyfriend, AKA Junior, was visited by guests at his Florence hotel earlier that month. A young man and an older woman in a veil showed up unannounced. According to reports, the trio got into a heated discussion that ended with the young man punching Junior. The two visitors then left the hotel and took a stack of letters with them. For a while, no one knew who they were, but eventually, reporters learned the young man was Dorothy's older brother, John, and the woman behind the veil was her mother, Mary Arnold. Remember when Dorothy's father begged for the press to give his wife privacy as she recovered from the stress of their daughter's disappearance? Well, apparently, she was well enough to travel halfway across the world for an interrogation. As for the letters they took with them, those were apparently sent to Junior from Dorothy. But investigators never get to see them, they ask to, but the Arnolds tell police that they've all been destroyed. All except for one. I'm not sure why her family chose to save this letter, but Dorothy sent it to Junior shortly after Thanksgiving, about two weeks before she disappeared. For the most part, she sounds happy, but her tone changes near the end when she says, quote, Well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. An accident. At a glance, it makes sense. 
I mean, she says McClure's, the literary magazine that turned her down. But then there's the next two lines. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Maybe she's saying her mom will insist that the magazine made a mistake and rejected her by accident. But really, she could be talking about anything. Without the rest of her letters for context, it's impossible to know. But soon enough, the world gets hope that Dorothy Arnold might still be alive. In early February, Junior comes back to the US to help the Arnolds look for her. He says he's certain she's out there somewhere. He'll do everything in his power to find her, and then he'll marry her if he gets the Arnold's blessing. Now, it should come as no surprise that he likely wouldn't get their blessing. Dorothy's parents make that very clear. But that doesn't stop Junior. Over the next few weeks, he spends serious time and money trying to track her down. He hires his own private investigator and buys newspaper ads begging her to come home. A few weeks into Junior's investigation, he apparently receives a mysterious message. I don't know who sent it or where it came from, but once the message arrives, Junior apparently locks himself in his hotel room and is somehow in communication with the sender. Whoever they are, they claim to know where Dorothy is. Newspapers speculate that it could be a close friend of hers, or even Dorothy herself. But right next to those articles talking about how Dorothy could be found is another article that says the exact opposite. The headline reads, Arnold thinks girl was slain. It explains that Frances Arnold supposedly received tips that Dorothy was kidnapped and murdered. Francis told reporters he'd turn the clues over to officials, but wouldn't say what they were. And so, the public anxiously waits to see what's true and what's not. Days pass, then weeks, but there's nothing. Junior never finds Dorothy, and the police never find evidence that she was murdered. The investigation hits a wall, but newspapers keep printing stories and sightings. Dorothy's spotted everywhere from Philadelphia to LA, purchasing men's clothes to disguise herself, selling shoe polish, spending time in a mental institution. None of the leads pan out. In a rare moment of vulnerability, Francis expresses his family's pain. He says it would be bad enough to find out his daughter's dead, but the uncertainty is worse. After countless tips and at least one instance of attempted blackmail, the Arnolds stop entertaining the idea that their daughter is still out there. Junior pulls his newspaper ads. The investigation fizzles out. But Dorothy's name never fades from the headlines entirely. It's just not plastered on the front page anymore. Then, three years later, there's a break in the case. Almost 400 miles away, members of Pittsburgh law enforcement find a crime scene that could be connected to her disappearance. It's April, 1914. Police arrest one nurse and two doctors who are running a secret medical practice out of a home in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. All three face murder charges. Newspapers call the facilities the House of Mystery and the articles about the home read like a horror story. Surgical equipment and operating tables spread about the house two large furnaces in the basement. They call it a place where, quote, 
many women met a gruesome fate from illegal operations. It's not explicit, but they're talking about abortions. It was an underground maternity hospital, and authorities find the body of a missing woman buried somewhere near the house. It's not Dorothy. It's a woman named Myrtle Allison, but officials learn there were other women just like Myrtle, ones who came to the hospital hoping for a safe abortion and lost their lives. One of the doctors even names Dorothy, saying she died in their care. According to Pittsburgh's district attorney, they found evidence connecting Dorothy to the hospital, but it's never been released. And when the story hits the news, the Arnolds deny everything. It's all a misunderstanding. They received a tip that led them to the clinic years ago, a few months after Dorothy disappeared. John Keith went to Pittsburgh to investigate, and the Arnolds claim the woman in question wasn't Dorothy. They say she wasn't even a brunette. Then in 1921, the mystery deepens even further. A police captain is speaking at a high school assembly when he claims Dorothy's case has been solved. Because it's confidential, he can't go into details or even say whether she's alive. But he confirms with complete certainty that Dorothy Arnold is no longer a missing person. And once again, the Arnolds are outraged they say it's a huge misunderstanding. But the question is, who's telling the truth? Well, it depends on who or what you choose to believe. Maybe the Arnolds knew something we didn't and Dorothy was kidnapped and murdered. Or maybe that was just a front for something they felt they needed to hide. That's why they prioritized optics over their daughter's well-being, lied to friends, hid evidence, made up theories, and denied statements from officials. But if we remove everything the Arnolds said for a minute, here's what's left. Three months before Dorothy went missing, she spent a week in Boston with her boyfriend, who was from Pittsburgh. After she disappeared, a doctor from an underground maternity hospital in Pittsburgh says Dorothy died in their care while seeking an abortion. The city's attorney general says police found evidence linking Dorothy to the hospital, and there are no significant updates until someone from law enforcement says Dorothy's case is closed. Dorothy lived in a world of wealth and power that had its own unwritten code of conduct. For the people in her circle, maintaining that code was everything. And I can't help but wonder what it might have cost Dorothy. What might have changed if an intelligent adult woman was given agency to make her own decisions? If shame was removed from this story entirely? The truth is, we may never know what happened to Dorothy Arnold because the real traces of her were burned and scattered. All that's left is a patchwork of everyone else's narratives. The Arnolds, the media, even Junior, but I can't stop thinking about how Dorothy disappeared just as she was trying to forge her own path, to put her writing out into the world. Her words. I wish we could read them now. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. 
If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Alan Churchill's article, The Girl Who Never Came Back, incredibly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Alex Garland, edited by Natalie Perzovsky and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.